This yes. is hell. All right. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Today on This is Hell, Canada started stealing indigenous land before there even was a Canada. Okay, it was the freaking British, but... That legal recognition of this land theft was recognized until recently, and in many ways, it still is. Yeah, land theft from the indigenous people is actually legal. Unbelievably, it's founded on the legally accepted premise that, well, Europeans discovered what was to be Canada, not the people who had been living there for thousands of years. So it's whiteies. Settler colonialism's devastating attempt at assimilation, which amounted to a kind of cultural genocide that included the destruction of indigenous language and gender norms, eventually created within the indigenous the misogyny, patriarchy, and lateral violence that had already infected Western society. Stealing land from the indigenous, whose sustainable biodiversity protecting and productive land management practices reached back millennia, destroyed a society whose stewardship had provided the fertile environment for the birth of an empire, and an existential threat to their very survival. And like women, transgender, queer, and other non-heteroconformative people, capitalism's patriarchy ain't crazy about the indigenous and their agricultural practices. They're not focused on short-term profits at the cost of destroying the environment and the world. In a few minutes, we'll talk to Dr. Hayden and Dr. Dr. Hayden King and Dr. Shiri Pasternak, contributors to the new Yellowhead Institute red paper entitled Land Back. You can find out more about the Yellowhead Institute and their paper at yellowheadinstitute.org. Dr. King is executive director at Yellowhead Institute, and Dr. Pasternak is research director at Yellowhead Institute. You can follow Shiri on Twitter at Shiri Pasternak, and you can follow Hayden on Twitter at Hayden underscore King. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will announce our favorite answer. This week's prize for having our favorite answer is a book we featured earlier on this week's show, Nicole Ashoff's The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. You can hear that interview right now at our website, thisishell.com. And of course, we'll wrap up the week as we do most weeks with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff tells, tells the tale of a whale. Jeff tells the tale of a whale. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have any plans for the weekend? Uh, Are you going to be watching NBA without anybody in the stands? No, they're not even playing now, right? Oh, that's right. They they canceled the whole, uh, they suspended the whole league entirely. I am really looking forward to watching basketball, though, with no fans in the audience. This NCAA basketball tournament, if they actually go through with it, you are going to be able to hear everything every player says. And if they don't play music, the players are going to be able to hear everything the play-by-play announcers say on the sidelines. So they'll be right there being able to hear the criticism throughout the game. So I'm really looking forward to that weird, weird conflict that they're going to have. College basketball, great. I can hear people falling down every 30 seconds. (laughs) I know. but Start paying attention to college basketball. Someone's falling down every 30 seconds. I'm telling you, watching anything with nobody in the audience I think is just weird. I think it's really weird. And I'm kind of looking forward to it. This week's question from Al is, what's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? What's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Yep. Via email, <laughs> yep. Scott K says, keeping it in my pocket and hoping it makes me sterile. <laughs> Harold J says, use it to start a bonfire. Nick A says, stay docile and obey. What is the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? Austin RM says, I'll be updating Chuck's find a grave profile <laughs> when the time comes, of course. <laughs> Ray O says, but I don't have a smartphone. And finally, Abigail or Abigor TL says, if we all fuse our smartphones together, we could create a physical barrier between Joe Biden and all the young girls that he sniffs and touches inappropriately. <laughs> so gross. Again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio, or email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com. Again, our favorite answer wins a book that we featured earlier on this week's show. 
Nicole Ashoff's The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. And you can hear that interview right now at our website, thisishell.com. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell after today's guest. And we will reveal our favorite following Jeff. So this whole thing is really weird. No office hours tomorrow night because of coronavirus. We usually have a meet and greet, a drink and think with listeners of the show every Friday night starting at about 7 o'clock, but we have postponed it or delayed it or just canceled it temporarily until this whole coronavirus thing blows over. Not that anyone we know has contracted the virus, not that anybody I know who has been near me or around me or in this building has caught the virus. And I want to apologize to NCAA basketball tournament and NBA fans for canceling all of their events just because we announced our cancellation. I'm sorry. We shouldn't have done it, but now this whole thing is cascading, snowballing into a gigantic mess of everybody canceling everything. But yesterday here in Chicago, someone did contract coronavirus where one of my girlfriend's cousins works. Keep in mind, a lot of people work where her cousin works, and my girlfriend has a whole lot of cousins. I fell into a low mood yesterday after announcing that we would not be holding our regular drink and think with listeners this week, and then I talked about Joe Biden for 45 minutes, and that made me feel even lower, deeper down. So to lighten the mood, I thought I'd go home to read about the legal theft of indigenous land. Luckily, my girlfriend was home. Unluckily, it was because she wasn't feeling well Tuesday when several people left work because they were getting sick. And this is all after an older co-worker has not been at work all week because of, you guessed it, flu-like symptoms. Still, for me and my girlfriend, being home on a weekday together is not something that happens very often. And despite us both having to do some work, actual work, it was a nice change. Although I was reminded of what a huge huge distraction it is to work at home. Something I did exclusively for 13 years until we got this office and studio. At home, there's always a dish that hasn't been washed, a newspaper that hasn't been picked up, a trash can that hasn't been emptied, recycling that hasn't been taken out, counters that haven't been cleaned. It's it's a neat freak with obsessive compulsive disorders, worst freaking nightmare. And now that we've got one of those robot vacuum cleaners just to terrorize our cats and keep the place clean, I can't stop watching that thing move around. It's hypnotizing. And again, the cats, they're always up to something that easily distracts me from the nightmare of indigenous land dispossession and all the reading I had to do for this week's show. So yeah, I could really, really use a night out. A night out like office hours tomorrow night. A night not at home. A night not at the office working. A night out with friends celebrating but i can't because of freaking coronavirus and you are not kidding anybody covid19 we know your real name you duplicitous plague on society yesterday the world health organization turned it up to 11 calling it a pandemic so while i will be drinking at home alone tomorrow night well with my girlfriend so not entirely alone but not out celebrating with you i will raise a glass and toast to all of us that we make through the latest, newest nightmare, the freshest evidence that proves this is hell. Coming up, the fight to take land back that was legally stolen from the indigenous by British and then the Canadian governments. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from Al. We'll name your favorite, or our favorite, and the winner of Nicole Ashoff's The Smartphone Society Technology power and resistance in the new Gilded Age. We'll share what we're doing on Patreon this week. There will be a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin this week. Jeff tells the tale of a whale, and Alex will tell us what's happening on upcoming shows. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry, live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell for centuries. Britain and then Canada followed in stealing land from the indigenous in the area we now know as Canada, and they did it legally within the fiction of their law that was based on complete nonsense. The outcome of that theft was the devastation of a culture, of people, language, that would become twisted by the society which tried to assimilate them with tragic results. Here to explain why giving land back to Canada's indigenous is not only fair and right and just, but it might actually be a huge step towards saving us all, 
our guests, Dr. Hayden King and Dr. Shuri Pasternak, are contributors to the new Yellowhead Institute red paper entitled Land Back. You can find out more about the Yellowhead Institute and their paper at yellowheadinstitute.org. Dr. King is executive director at Yellowhead Institute, and Dr. Pasternak is research director. You can follow Hayden on Twitter at Hayden underscore King, and you can follow Shuri on Twitter at Shuri Pasternak. First, welcome to This Is Hell, Dr. King. Anine, welcome. Thanks for having me. And welcome to This Is Hell, Dr. Pasternak. Hi, thanks for having us. That's great. I'm glad that you both sound fantastic. We never know nowadays. We just got a new board this week and everything's sounding fantastic. So let's start with you, Dr. King. You write that from 1968 to 1969, the federal liberal government led by Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau drafted a new Indian policy as a response to the activism of indigenous leaders. The document proposed a shift away from oppressive and discriminatory government policies rooted in equality, or as Trudeau put it, a just society for indigenous people. It was a demand for integrity from Canadians, honoring of treaty rights, restitution and self-determination. The white paper, as the new policy became known, betrayed those demands and prescribed political and legal assimilation into Canadian society. This, of course, was more of the same. Hayden, what was the point of coming up with a new policy if, in fact, it ended up being more of the same? And did it placate the indigenous activists of the time who had uh, pressured uh, Pierre Trudeau to do something about it. Right. I, I think that that moment was one moment in this very long history between Indigenous people and Canadians, and I would go so far as to say Indigenous people and Americans. Just this settler colonialism on the continent has gone through these phases where uh, colonization unfolds, Indigenous people resist, and then uh, often federal officials will try to contain that resistance in some way, shape, or form. And and in this case, it was to say, okay, well, we've stolen all your land and oppressed all your people and, and uh, kidnapped your children. We realized that was probably wrong, so we're going to create a new policy to fix all of that. And that's going to be what we call the white paper on Indian policy. Um, and as I said, that, this is just sort of one iteration of a very long historical phenomenon. I think, you know, in 1951, the same thing was attempted. Uh, and you can trace this back every generation or so. There's one of these moments where uh, an attempted reconciliation um, uh, uh, unfolds. And so the white paper was just one of those one of those attempts. And it was responded to by Native leaders with anger because ultimately like all of those previous attempts it's really just an attempt to rescue colonization to rescue uh, uh canada and really change nothing fundamental about the relationship uh, um, and so we saw that before 1968-69 and we see it after 1968-69 so just to follow up on that, Hayden, real quick. So it was it a uh, was one of the shortcomings of the of the white paper that it was more about incremental reforms and not uh, any kind of systemic challenge. I think it was even less about incremental reforms. I think that what the government of the day attempted to do was to um, uh, disguise progressive change with an attack on. Uh, treaty rights and indigenous rights. You know, they thought that the best way forward was to privatize all indigenous land, to have indigenous people fall under, you know, provincial jurisdiction, sort of like state jurisdiction, um, and just to get on with the relationship as, you know, um, legal equals uh, uh, during a civil rights movement. But indigenous people, of course, were saying, you know, there's unfinished business here. We have treaty obligations and we have to address colonization. So uh, we're not going to just, you know, politically assimilate into your uh, into your state. Dr. Pasternak, the uh, red paper states that in response, First Nation leaders in Alberta drafted Citizens Plus in 1970, known as the red paper. The red paper was a constructive alternative to Canada's vision. Yellowhead Institute is inspired by the notion of the red paper as a productive vision of indigenous futures that critically engages with Canadian frameworks. In the case of our red paper, we aim to link Canadian policy prescriptions more closely to land and resource management and to outline the corresponding indigenous alternatives. Like the 1970 original, we aim to support communities with additional information, ideas, and tools to respond to federal plans on their own terms. Why, Shiri, why the focus, and I know this is a very basic and simple question, but I want to make sure that everybody understands this. Why the focus on land and resource management? Is the fight 
for indigenous rights, the fight for land rights, and if so, why? Uh, that's a really good question and a really deep question about the nature of anti-colonial struggle in Canada. And, you know, this is the second major report that Yellowhead has put out. In our first one, we really focused on policy and legislation that the government's introducing in order to actually make gestures towards incremental change to recognizing land rights. In this report, I feel like we go right into the heart of the issue of the ongoing forms of dispossession that we need to be attentive to in order to understand what all of those gestures of recognition look like and how they fall short of actual restitution and redistribution of land. Because you can't really get away from the fact that the entire you know, state formation project and the political economy of Canada today are premised on the dispossession of indigenous land. And if people are gonna have an economic base of self-determination, we're going to have to address the restitution of land and the original form of oppression, which is dispossession in Canada. Sherry, you, you're the red paper also cites Harold Cardinal, who you describe as critical to the creation of the first red paper, recognizing nearly 50 years ago, writing in The Unjust Society that, quote, the old religion of the Indians' forefathers slowly twisted into moral positions that had little relevance to his environment twisted to fit seemingly senseless concepts of good and bad. You add, whether through residential schools, Indian agents, or Christianization, this twisting manifested itself in dismantling the power of women, evacuating ceremony meant to honor the animals we hunted, and the rise of homophobia and lateral violence. And so, going back to Harold Car Cardinal's writing, quote, a return to the old values, ethics, and morals of native beliefs would strengthen our social institutions. Shiri, this twisting then was, this the, was the process of European settler assimila assimilation. Why does indigenous culture, when twisted with white European culture, lead to the disempowerment of women, the rise of patriarchy, homophobia, lateral violence, that is more violence amongst one another? Why does that happen to indigenous culture when white European culture is imposed upon it? Well, I think the answer is really to turn the gaze onto white European culture and to look at the organization of societies through patriarchy that relied on the subjugation of women and the devaluing of of sorry of women's knowledge. And then with colonization, primarily through education systems, but also through, you know, cultural exchange and contact, you have the imposition of these ideologies of patriarchy um, imposed upon Indigenous people that then are internalized through colonial structures of governance like the band council system that's introduced through the Indian Act. Hayden, you, uh, the red paper also mentions how uh, assimilation by force from residential schools, Indian agents, or Christianization also led to evacuating ceremony that was meant to honor the animals we hunted. I just want to repeat that because in January we spoke with sociologist Kari Marie Norgard, author of Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. And Kari studies the relationship between the Karak people and the land of the um, Klamath Basin in Northern California and Southern Oregon. And she mentions the importance of ceremony when it comes to land management, how those ceremonies were targeted by settler colonialism, and their potential today for environmentalism is very great, according to Kari. Was assimilation a religion or a religious war or a, on a land management process that was spiritually bound to nature? Was this a religious war? Religious war. Um I think it's a, uh, a a conflict over law, really. Um, and you know, I come from the Nishnabek tradition, and and ceremony is important. And uh, understanding how we relate to the land and how we um, fit into all of creation is is important, and that can be um, thought of as a religious in nature. Um, but it can also be thought of in more material terms and um, really pragmatic ways, actually. I think that Anishinaabek people and other indigenous people generally have understood for a very long time that if you don't take care of that which sustains you, i.e. the land, the water, um, then you'll die in, in very straightforward ways. <laughs> and I think that that's what we're all experiencing right now with climate change. And indigenous people, whether they're Anishinaabek or uh, uh, Klamath or um, uh, Dakota across the continent have for, well, since time immemorial, 
developed laws and values and spiritualities that have uh, embedded these these really basic principles into how we relate to one another and how we relate to the land. And of course, when settlers arrived and sought to exploit the land and viewed it as a commodity, um, you know, those initial or original indigenous values had to be liquidated. They had to be uh, suppressed because they posed a threat to extraction and uh, uh, exploitation of the land. And so this, this, this conflict that we're talking about um, certainly, you know, could be framed as religious, but ultimately it was uh, economic and legal, I think, uh, at its heart. Dr. Pasternak, you write the infrastructure to legally steal our lands is important to understand, and so are the concrete promising practices to reassert jurisdiction. But without including a discussion on how those promising practices are being done in a good way, we'll keep getting it twisted. So this is the part that really just confuses me a lot, Shiri. Is the history of indigenous lands being stolen by settlers not a history of a crime, but something that was according to the laws written by the settlers, completely legal. Because if, if I understand your writing correctly, the logic behind it is that the Europeans discovered the land and therefore it is theirs, despite the fact other people had been living on it for thousands of years. And that logic just seems absurd. So is this was this a legal crime? And was it was the legality based on an absurd logic? That's an excellent question. And I think it goes back to Hayden's point about the fact that this is a, a kind of uh, context of legal warfare between different legal systems. Um, colonization in Canada was strictly by the rule of law, um, settler law, that is. And it has continued that way until today. So dating back to the imperial uh, legalities of the doctrines of discovery, we still see the arguments of discovery being held up in the Supreme Court of Canada by the state as the rationale for claiming underlying title to all lands in Canada. And partly the reason for that is just the racist anthropology that the country is based on. But the other part is more practical, which is that without the doctrines of discovery, the state doesn't have a legal basis for claiming sovereignty on these lands. That's the foundation of sovereignty in Canada. And so with the doctrines of discovery that um, that uh, initiated contact and claims of territory, you have a whole uh, slew of legal of colonial legalities that followed um, that um, set up the foundations for the Canadian state. But power doesn't flow in one direction. And what you see, actually, when you look at the history of the country and how the law has been used to legislate all kinds of oppressive policies against Indigenous people, from land dis uh, dispossession to the abduction of children and so on, you also see this constant pushback by Indigenous people that's shaping the law itself, um, both in the sense that the Indian Act provisions become more and more oppressive as Indigenous people resist attempts to take over their governance systems and to change the status of women in their communities, um, but also in the sense that the law has had to break and give in different circumstances. So in 1982, Due to the tremendous efforts of Indigenous people, uh, Indigenous rights were patriated into our Constitution, which were supposed to usher in a new era of lawmaking in the country where Indigenous governments would be considered a third order of government and would have their rights and treaties respected according to um, Indigenous law. Unfortunately, that has been a very um, uh, rocky path. Um, but you do see these tensions as well throughout the um, formation of law in Canada as it's been used to oppress Indigenous people, but then also taken up as a tool uh, by Indigenous people to push back against its restrictions and limitations on their sovereignty and self-determination. Shiri, do you know if that dis doctrine of discovery 
Is that typical? Is that not unique to Canada law? Is the same thing being done against the indigenous in anywhere, in Brazil, in Australia, in the United States? Is that kind of uh, part and parcel to the whole idea of uh, land theft from indigenous people? I mean, certainly what uh, legalized the global scramble for resources and land in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries was a notion of discovery and, um, you know, the uh, authority of um, the Pope at one point, and then as things changed, uh, royal kingdoms throughout Europe to claim Indigenous lands. But all of those claims are different um, according to different national traditions. I just am most well aware of the Anglophone uh, settler colonies, the U.S., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and certainly the doctrine of discovery was the foundational uh, legal uh, principle that justified colonization in those places. You just think that that logic would be overturned by now, and by now that that, wouldn't, that would no longer be any kind of have any kind of legal power whatsoever. We've been we are speaking with Dr. Hayden King and Dr. Sherry Pasternak, contributors to the new Yellowhead Institute red paper entitled Land Back. You can find out more about the Yellowhead Institute and their paper at yellowheadinstitute.org. Hayden, you write this report has been drafted with attention to those speaking back against the Western masculine and exclusionary politics and values that many in our communities have adopted and practice. Is this a project to de-Westernize Indigenous culture? In in some ways, it is, and I'm not sure I would I would uh, make the dichotomy around Western versus non-Western, um, but maybe around you know Indigenous and, and and settler. Ultimately, what we have seen in Canada and I think the United States, it really since the 1960s and 1970s, has been this tremendous resurgence in Indigenous culture, politics, economics, philosophy. Uh, after being suppressed for so long, there's been this real uh, return to those uh, uh, original values. And the tensions that we're seeing are between those who are saying, you know, let's continue down this path and resurrect our languages and our worldviews and our political economies, and legal systems, and those who are saying, you know, there's this mine opening up uh, that we could get jobs in and benefit from. Um, uh or, you know, the sort of tribal chiefs that we have in our communities we call Indian Act chiefs that uh, that derive their power from federal legislation and maybe perpetuate some of those uh, more masculine ideals of of of, uh, of uh, what indigenous community and society is right now. And so these are these are tensions, right? It's, it's not a it's not a complete project, the resurgence of indigenous uh, communities and cultures. And so when 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 I'm writing about those tensions, it's it's uh, a conflict that we're having internally, and it's a really it's a conversation for Indigenous communities ourselves. You know, what is authentic uh, as we move through colonization, um, and uh, how do we how do we ensure that that uh, the future that we're creating for our children and our grandchildren is an authentic one that's true to our ancestors. Um, and so that's uh, that's that's one challenge that we're grappling with, and that's one challenge that we're grappling with amid trying to deal with things like the legacy of the doctrine of discovery and the imposition of settler colonial laws and the ongoing cultural attempts at cultural assimilation of indigenous people. Um, so it's uh, it's it's to answer your question in in, in straightforward ways. It's. Uh, um, it's 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 trying to, to trying to revitalize what being indigenous is. And as you state in the paper, it's about a cultural resurgence. Shiri, uh, the red paper states that we have identified cases of land and water reclamation that center women and, to a lesser extent, queer and or two-spirit individuals. We have more work to do to amplify these perspectives and experiences. After all, as our board member Emily Riddle has taught us, indigenous governance is actually pretty gay. Sherry, what do you mean by and how is indigenous governance pretty gay? I think a lot of the leadership of resurgence that Hayden just described as being led by queer communities and individuals across the country. Um, and I think that, you know, some of the writers who have 
uh, tempted to uh, theorize this, like Alex Wilson, have talked about the fact that um, gender, bodies, and sovereignty are deeply intertwined in Indigenous communities, and so that it's not an accident that queer people are at the forefront of resurgence. It's actually about the integral ways in which um, they're connected to, responsible for, and um, in attunement with. Uh, the relationship between the health of their bodies and the health of the land. There's been a lot of really amazing advocacy. Uh, the Native Youth Sexual Health Network is on the forefront of some of this incredible writing, but there are, you know, uh, uncountable numbers of organizations and individuals who are really um, leading movements. For example, you saw a lot of these uh, queer and um, indigenous women and girls at the forefront of the recent blockades that were erected in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en people who were evicted by their lands by an energy company last month. A lot of those movements were led by these communities and really showed tremendous uh, bravery and strength and courage in the face of massive oppression that followed. Are they then the people who are, Shiri, are they then the people who are making these times revolutionary, as your paper states? Our times are revolutionary, while tragically little has changed since 1968 to 1970. There are also emerging debates to reflect on and work through together. So, Shiri, is, is it that leadership, that queer, uh, non-heteroconformative leadership, is that what is making these times revolutionary for the Indigenous in Canada? Uh I mean, that's a really hard question to answer. From my personal opinion, I see that leadership being instrumental, but instrumental in leading a vast network of coalition building between Indigenous people and supporters, non-Indigenous supporters and allies at this moment, which again, we really saw come to the forefront last month with all of these solidarity blockades um, that essentially shut the country down. I think the power of that movement was that it was led by um, women and queer communities and individuals, but that people took that leadership, which is, you know, the, the critical next step in um, uh, an actual revolutionary politics is people recognizing who has the authority to make decisions and to lead people towards what, you know, Indigenous jurisdiction and self-determination will look like. And are we ready to heed that call? Hayden, the uh, report states that we continue to grapple with federal and provincial bureaucrats and our industry on rights, title, and jurisdiction, but we are increasingly turning inward and are having productive conversations about what reclaiming land and water might look like for all of us. Uh, this is I, I'm going to hate asking this question, Hayden, but it says all of us. How much is land back a challenge to white privilege? Will this be an inconvenience to white supremacy? Uh, yeah, that's the sort of reconciliatory question, I guess, isn't it? Then, uh, you know, when 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 I wrote that passage, it was really the all of us was uh, meant to to speak to all of us as indigenous people. So, what does land back for look like for all of us as indigenous people with the, the with the conflicts that we have uh, internally in our communities? But I think your question does open up space to to ask what the role is for non indigenous people. Um, and I think, you know, what we try to drive home in the conclusion is that uh, we're currently facing a climate crisis. All of us are facing a climate crisis and uh, the practices and the philosophy that underwrite indigenous jurisdiction of land, indigenous uh, decisions on, on land and water use are actually, that's the source, that's the well of knowledge uh, that we can draw on to actually, um, at the least, help preserve biodiversity. And uh, biodiversity, of course, is the key to ensuring ecosystems are resilient uh, when it comes to adapting to climate change. Um, and so this is what we're ultimately talking about. And I know that this may sound um, hyperbolic, but ultimately what we're talking about is Indigenous people helping to save the world. And it and non-Indigenous people need to understand and recognize that that knowledge is valid and uh, relevant and revolutionary and uh, the solution or at least a partial solution to adapting to climate change is effectively land back. Um, and so, you know, it's important for non-Indigenous peoples, uh, 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 Canadians or Americans to, uh, to, to get behind that and, and to lend their support to the type of strategies that we describe in the, in the paper. 
And Shiri, I want to get back to a point that both you and Hayden were touching on earlier. If indigenous culture and spirituality and ceremony is centered around nature and capitalism depends upon resource extraction for fuel and industry, is indigenous culture, as well as rights, law, and religion, is it anti-capitalist? And if so, how much does that explain why indigenous cultures are so often victims of genocide by capitalism and its supporters, just because they just don't fit within capitalism? Mm. Um, I don't want to answer for all indigenous people about whether they're anti-capitalist, but certainly we can look at the relationship between capitalism and colonialism in Canada and the states and draw pretty concrete conclusions about um, the uh, intersectionality inter, uh, between those forms of power especially in Canada, um, more to, to a greater extent than in the U.S., resource extraction was the main engine for colonization and settlement. And so you have an entire infrastructure uh, for this country that is based on the dispossession of Indigenous people, and that infrastructure continues to be the basis of the Indigenous economy. Our dollars are, to a great extent, petrodollars. And so... Um, the prioritization of capitalism and particularly uh, fossil fuel-based capitalism is really having a disproportionate impact on Indigenous people, though obviously it affects us all. And so there are definite relationships between um, an anti-capitalist and an anti-colonial politics here, especially in Canada, because they're so deeply intertwined. And that's not just the oil and gas industry. That's also our hydroelectric industry, which is considered a green energy, but has caused catastrophic impacts on communities through diversions and dams on their territories. Uh, the mining industry, which is one of the biggest in the world in Canada, um, forestry and other industries. And so, you know, from the perspective of uh, anti-capitalism, you know, just from my personal perspective, investments in alternative forms of economic organization, as well as a transition to green energy would, you know, as long as it was uh, centered on and led by Indigenous people, could really be also a conjoined way out of both capitalism and colonialism if people were actually committed to making those kinds of changes. Hayden, the red paper states women, queer, transgender, gender diverse, and two-spirit people have never been the beneficiaries of these new distributions of power through colonization. Rather, they were targeted and disempowered, removing the challenge they posed to the patriarchy of Western systems of governance. This system was in many cases internalized by indigenous communities and often reproduced through misogyny in First Nation governments. Women and queer indigenous people are excluded from management, jurisdiction, decision-making, and contemporary policy and politics, which results in, amongst other things, environmental and sexual violence. Women, queer, and transgender, transgender people, especially when indigenous, are seen as challenges to patriarchy, so they are discriminated against, subjugated. But can there be, Hayden, is it possible for there to be a capitalism without patriarchy? Can't we have a capitalist matriarchy or a capitalism that isn't either... Uh, either that is gender neutral giving all gender identities fair and equal rights or is that just simply not how capitalism works yeah that's a that's a it's a big question um i think that ultimately when we look to indigenous feminist thought and we look to indigenous queer thought uh we see a lot of attention to care uh a lot of attention to love and i think that that's really what emily riddle was talking about when she said that indigenous governance is is actually kind of gay you know these are frameworks of um tenderness and if we conceptualized you know funding methodologies or gdp uh, uh or wealth generally along these lines of care um, then we would have a radically different economic system, a radically different political economy. And capitalism, at least as it's been practiced and my knowledge of it, really rests on exploitation, exploitation of the land, exploitation of labor. Um, and that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a framework that uh, is, is, has evacuated all care, uh, evacuated love, evacuated these uh, um, uh, 
principles of of supporting one another in 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 an economic system. So I think fundamentally, at the at the most general level, I I I think that there's an incompatibility there that is um, perhaps impossible to reconcile. Shuri, the report states that land alienation must also be understood through gender dynamics, which are instrumental to how land loss and dispossession unfold and impact people's lives. Gender is also critical to the ways in which the right to consent is denied to indigenous peoples. They might have the uh, right for consultation, but certainly not the right for consent. How is land alienation linked to gender dynamics? Let me just give one example that's really at the forefront of a lot of incredible activism right now, which is the construction of man camps associated with large industrial development. So with the construction of pipelines, for example, through indigenous territories, they're often accompanied by camps of men, up to a thousand people who are temporary workers, who work long hours, have access to a lot of cash and often are heavy drug users as a result of needing to uh, put in incredibly arduous shift hours. Man camps have been correlated with incredible rates of violence against indigenous women. And this goes back to the 1960s where there were reports from Manitoba Hydro about um, impacts on indigenous women, sexual violence, both by uh, workers, but also by local police forces. And this has been a huge issue for a lot of Indigenous women who are protesting uh, or contesting the construction of fossil fuel infrastructure through their territories. And one of the examples that we look at in the reclamation section of the report are the tiny house warriors who are building tiny houses in the path of the Trans Mountain Pipeline in um, so-called British Columbia through their Sequetmec territory. And one of those tiny houses in Blue River is uh, blocking the construction of one of those man camps. And so, you know, this this um, this advocacy is uh, intertwined against fossil fuels, against resource extraction, against colonization and dispossession, but is a real gender-based analysis against violence that is at the forefront of their concerns, in particular in the construction phase of this industrial development. We have been speaking with Dr. Hayden King and Dr. Shiri Pasternak. They're contributors to the new Yellowhead Institute red paper entitled Land Back. You can find out more about the Yellowhead Institute and their paper at yellowheadinstitute.org. You can follow Hayden on Twitter at Hayden underscore King, and you can follow Shiri on Twitter at Shiri Pasternak. I have one more question for each of you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is called the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. Let's start with you, Hayden. You write this, uh, another place where you disagree with the UN Global Assessment Report is the UN is an organization of states that first and foremost defends the territorial integrity of sovereign states. That means that states are the primary vehicle to address climate change and loss of biodiversity. Even while the UN recognizes the harms states perpetuate against indigenous people, including denying consent, they cannot cannot imagine non-state indigenous-led solutions that may threaten the state system. Hayden, in your opinion, is the number one cause of climate change and threat to the planet the state? Uh, yeah, that is a that is a tricky question. Uh, hmm, I, 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 I wish I could say that there was a single cause or a, a single greatest cause. Um, I think the state as a political community is really good at uh, holding up particular institutions and ind individuals with power, uh, and those institutions and individuals often um, serve capital. Uh, and uh, the state also helps to organize particular uh, uh, social norms um, like patriarchy, like homophobia. Um, so I would say it's a very uh, it's a central element of a complex. I'll try to leave it there. Okay. Well, uh, you know, it's also problematic to try to find one cause that is more a cause than any other thing. But is the state the cause that is the most ignored, in your opinion, when it comes to the causes of climate change, Hayden? 
Maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I think that one of the, this is a significant collective action problem that that humanity is facing right now, and individual states are pointing the finger at each other instead of working collectively. You know, um, China's burning too much coal. The Americans have pulled out of the Paris Accords, um, and so I think that the state inculcates in um, communities and individuals this very nationalist. Uh, mentality and perspective. And that nationalism blinds us to the work that we have to do collectively uh, as a species and as, um, you know, a species with obligations to the land and the water. And so um, I think that it is, uh, as a political community, as an institution, I mean, I think that it needs to be dismantled um, and and a huge barrier to addressing climate change. So, yeah. Sure. Our question from hell for you is the Red Paper states, the matter of land back is not merely a matter of justice, rights or reconciliation. Indigenous jurisdiction can indeed help mitigate the loss of biodiversity and climate crisis. Shiri, can giving land back to the indigenous save us from climate change? Absolutely. I think it can. And I also think, you know, that there is no other way forward at this point. I agree with Hayden that the state at this point is one of the greatest obstacles to meaningful adaptation and mitigation of land change, of um, climate change. But, you know, the state is also a colonial actor. And so I really feel like it's up to people now to put their trust and to put their, um, to reframe their, um, where they're taking their direction from the state towards indigenous people. And, you know, the situation in Canada makes that pretty straightforward for us. We have a situation where the crown, that is the federal and provincial governments, claim about 93% of the land base of this gigantic country as crown land. Most of it is not held as private property, so there wouldn't be a big issue in terms of land expropriation from private property owners. What the Crown is doing with that land is leasing and permitting and licensing it to resource companies that come and extract uh, these resources, leaving environmental destruction behind, adding to the cumulative impact of, you know, decades and centuries of uh, land exploitation and leaving us to deal with the mess. We're not even really benefiting economically in terms of the tax and revenues that come from this extraction. So... I really think the time is now for Canadian citizens uh, to rethink their allegiance to the state and to turn towards Indigenous people and the leadership that they're showing on the ground to protect their lands and waters and to follow their lead and to act in solidarity with them. The Indigenous people don't have to be recognized by the state to have their jurisdiction respected. Uh, Canadians at all levels, uh, local and nationally, um, can recognize Indigenous jurisdiction and defer to Indigenous people um, in terms of land management protocols and uh, forms of governance. And so there really is no one coming to save us. I really feel like the time is now for us to all take uh, a second to recognize our own responsibilities and to act on them uh, responsibly and um, take leadership from Indigenous people at this time. You know what I found really fascinating about your report is uh, one of the points that you make is about the dynamism of uh, land management practices by Indigenous people and how they are so adaptable as times change, as weather changes, in climate change, they it can adapt. Indigenous practices adapt. They are very dynamic, and they're more dynamic than the practices that we have within capitalism. And I just find that a really fascinating thing to consider because so many people who are pro-capitalism will always state that it's so dynamic and willing to change for the times. And it doesn't. And you can look at indigenous land practices and actually they do have that dynamism. I want to thank you both so much for being on the air with us today. This report is unbelievably fantastic. Dr. Hayden King and Dr. Sherry Pasternak are contributors to the new Yellowhead Institute red paper entitled Land Back. You can find out more about the Yellowhead Institute, both of them and their work and the paper at yellowheadinstitute.org. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. This really is a fantastic work. Thank you so much. 
Switch. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who support This Is Hell in a Moment, as well as as have the moment of truth, this week's hangover cure, and what's happening on the show next week. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell for you is, what's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? What's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at Twitter, at thisishellradio. Email it to myself. Email mail it to Alex. Chuck at thisishell.com. Alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins. Nicole Ashoff's The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. We discussed that book with Nicole earlier this week on our show, and you can find that interview at thisishell.com. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. Uh, what's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone via DM? Yeehoke said, Pokemon, go to hell. <laughs> Mason B says, organize. And Martin F says, download porn. The world needs way less war and way more masturbation. <laughs> Maybe just less war. Uh, uh, finally, uh, via Twitter, a couple of responses. Wrangler Steve, our old friend, says the best thing that can be done with a cell phone is to hurl it at all one's hurl it with all one's moral might at the churlish chirons appearing on Fox News. <laughs> Joan Clawford said, like. Just like. <laughs> just liking things, I suppose. Rock Taster says, as a petri dish for growing the next global pandemic... Gotcha there. And then finally, Discipline Eurodov says, Posting humankind's highest calling. Again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins Nicole Ashoff's The Smartphone Society. On Patreon this week, uh, Alex, last I heard, was still digging into the archives to find an interview we did on a past presidential campaign. Any luck yet there, Alex? No, I can't find anything. But you want to find an interview that's, like, fun or, like, nice to listen to for once? I'm dying over here. Um, we did the Terry Jones ones. <laughs> There's some old, weird oddities. Maybe uh, maybe let's explore a mid-'90s oddity. Uh, how about talking to that guy about making... Uh, Ships out of toothpicks. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Look up Wayne Cousy, K-U-S-Y. He was an artist who would make, he like made a, a Lusitania in his apartment in Chicago, and it was so big, made out of popsicle sticks, sorry, popsicle sticks. It was so big that he had to cut it in half when a Baltimore museum wanted to have it. He had to have it cut in half and then taken over there. And as far as I know, it's still at that Baltimore museum. So maybe Wayne yeah, we'll, uh, we'll We'll find a weird and fun <laughs> and, unsu- and surprising grab bag uh, for tomorrow's Patreon show. And I will be getting everyone caught up with the small town newspaper, which someone gave me as a gift subscription, the Houghton Lake Resorter. This week, I'm looking at all the letters to the editor so far this year and I've found a continuity a similarity in all of them and no that similarity is not that they all end with the phrase in all caps load your guns that's only one of them however there does seem to be an implied load your guns in nearly every letter but you can only hear that if you subscribe to completely listener supported this is hell on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell you can also show your support for this is hell by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can help out this is hell including all of our merch on here on my script here it says licking on support but i want to tell everybody because of coronavirus definitely don't lick support Coming up during the Moment of Truth, contributor Jeff Dorchin tells the tale of a whale. We'll also have the question from Hell Winner and who's on next week's shows. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I ask were written while I was high. This is Hell. My guess is you already have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The Fall of Gary the Gray. Welcome to the Moment of Truth, the thirst that is the drink. The virus came to the lumpy orange buffoon at midnight, Eastern Daylight Savings Time. Who are you? Asked the human insult. I 
am COVID-19. Well, I'm Donald 45, the best president America has ever had. Then the virus got into bed behind the self-important flatulence and spooned up nice and close to his lobby carcass. If I don't touch my face, you can't hurt me, said the executive idiot. And I never, ever touch my face, he added, touching his face. Meanwhile, all across the land, people were either coughing or listening to someone else cough with dark foreboding. There was nowhere to escape to. Italy was closed. China, too. The sandy echoes of coughing capered around among the population like a million snakes with the legs of goats, little goats who caper in the little goat capering videos, echoing layers of coughs, a palimpsest of coughs, a sneeze, and coughs dancing around the sneeze as far as the ear could hear, as far as the heart could fear. COVID-19 hissed softly into the overbaked narcissist's ear hole. Listen, the children of the night making phlegmy music. Those symptoms are the offspring of your denial. No, they're not, squeaked the executive putrescence, his voice quivering like a statue sculpted from butt fat and bad cholesterol. No denial, no denial, denial no. The words denial no echoed it away into the diseased and polluted world, folding itself in amidst the cacophony of sickness, a worm in the labyrinthine tunnel of a collective intestine. Somewhere in the darkness, Joe Biden punched a voter in the face. Salvos of gunfire percolated across the farm belt. It was farmers tilling their fields at night to avoid the instant melanoma sunshine brought, harrowing the fields with automatic rifles. At one point, the clown president had issued a clown presidential order, banning all technology except guns, creating crises of impracticality so numerous and severe that the order had to be rescinded within five minutes of its proclamation. Such an extravagant taste of the Second Amendment, however, engendered a heady rush of patriotism in the people, and they refused to give up many of the new practices they'd instantly adopted, citing the inviolability of venerable tradition. In the cities, packs of feral health care workers, long unpaid, terrorized the streets. They all carried diseases picked up from their patients, COVID-19 being only the most prevalent contagion. There was Ebola, measles, legionnaires, SARS, TB, rabies, trench mouth, and kennel cough. The lay populace hunkered in fear as gangs in scrubs, self-segregating by institutional color, colloidal bismuth pink, cinder block green, necko wafer gray, moribund blue, swarmed the dumpsters and looted the shops in search of what vestiges of food, toilet paper, and hand sanitizer remained. Canada closed its southern border. The wall at the border with Mexico had been so cheaply made, thanks to contractors pocketing most of the cash, Halva never crumbled so easily. In the moonlight slouched its silhouette of ruin, a papier-mâché Parthenon left overnight in the rain. Texans lacking health insurance stolen to Mexico, felled as they emerged on the southern bank of the Rio Grande by machete-wheeling, hazmat-suited Central American refugees and other thwarted mines migrants, out-of-work smugglers with rifles, and sundry other guardians of the as-yet-relatively unaffected Latin Quarter Hemisphere. Out on the high seas, one of Betsy DeVos's stray yachts drifted, rolling up crests and sledding down into troughs, unmanned and derelict, an uncanny conceptual art portrait of its owner's intellect. A lone gray whale rose to the surface, took a look around at the vast, swelling and slithering ocean, opened its mouth, and coughed. Back at the White House, the virus's voice slipped into the ear of the blemish-in-chief like a cursed Japanese girl sucked over the lip of a well and down into emptiness. I will take your family members one by one. Start with Eric, then each of your friends will fall to me. Joke's on you, I don't have any friends. Then the voters... First to die will be the old and infirm. Good, I prefer the young and firm. By then, the bulk of the nation will have expired. 
Your base will be especially hard hit, thanks to your rallies. By election day, though, all that will be left will be children. I'm very good with children. Children love me more than any other person. I am their favorite. I'll lower the voting age to four. They're all going to vote for Bernie. Crazy Bernie will still be alive? Why are you surprised? If you're still alive, anything is possible. And the Senate has very good health care. But the CPAC vectors will take out the GP, GOP in both houses. You are destined to be the worst, most incompetent, losingest president in the history of the United States. Is there anything I can do to get popular with the kids? I mean, besides Nazi dog whistling? I'm only telling you this because I feel sorry for you and because you'll never be able to accomplish it. You should become friends with Gary. Who? Gary the Gray. The Gray Whale. Gary the Coughing Whale. Kids on Instagram love him. How am I supposed to make friends with an ocean going, I guess some people call it a fish, but they're wrong. They don't know it's technically a mammogram. I can't even swim. I mean, I can very well, in fact. I'm better than Aquaman, but I don't like it. You have to go on Instagram. I prefer Twitter, obviously. He's not on Twitter. What kind of fish doesn't have a Twitter account? A popular one. Look. The virus produced his cell phone and reached around from behind the executive spillage's ample buttocks to show him. The screen's glow illuminated a shaken, unhappy, deflated jack-o'-lantern of a man. He was up to 6.5 billion followers, now down to three. Oop, two. Oop, one billion. Uh-oh. Together they watched the numbers tumble. 500 million, 100 million, 40 million, 6 million, and plummeting. Outside, the sounds of panic, violence, and chaos fell away like the feathers and beak of a Chernobyl chicken. All that was left was silence sparsely sprinkled with coughing. The lonely pertussis percussion once heard after speeches by Jeb Bush before he wised up and started begging for applause. Everything was damped under a swiftly falling blanket of silence. It seemed the world had died. Then a delicate hiss arose and strengthened, fattened, grew rich with jangling and rattling like a trillion salt shakers shaking simultaneously, just cockroach choirs at first, but soon it was a chitinous chorus of every bee, wasp, beetle, cricket, mite, flea, fly, and mosquito, singing as one their grateful prayer to the four horsemen of disease, toxin, radiation, and human stupidity. A prayer of praise for delivering the apocalypse. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So I've moved on from social distancing. I'm into anti-social distancing now where I just yell insults at everybody around me to keep them away from me. So it's, it's working out pretty well so far uh, as long as people are not armed. Good. Stay healthy. Don't get shot. <laughs> See, I think it's a good idea. Also, I mean, uh, yeah. are you doing any self-imposed isolation there, Jeffy? I've been isolated for the last three days, actually. I haven't really done much, but uh, uh, I'm probably gonna I'm gonna go out tonight. I've got a I've got a, an author interview at Book Soup for a novelist about who wrote a book about uh, sleep deprivation. Who's the novelist? Roy Freirich, author of a book called uh, Winged Creatures about a mass shooting, which came out I don't know maybe 20 years ago and got made into a movie with. Forrest Whitaker, which, like my movie, no one's ever heard of. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jeffy, until next time. What? What should I do? Stay healthy, maybe? No, just stay beautiful. Oh, I'll make a beautiful corpse. Sweet. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Hell is, what's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? What's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? You still have time to leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page or on Twitter or email it to us. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question gets a book we featured earlier on this week's show. Nicole Ashoff's The Smartphone Society. Alex, do you have the rest of the answers to this week's question? That's all of them. That's all of them so far. All right, so let me see. First of all, my answer to this week's question from Hell, what's the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? I just assume create a, a, a virus that makes everyone's smartphone a dumb phone, I guess. I don't know. 
I, I don't own a smartphone, so I can't even think of something that I would do. Or a, or a cell phone. So, uh, to be honest, I, I don't even know. But the answers I did like the most this week were Scott saying, keeping it in my pocket and hoping it makes me sterile. That's very nice. Uh, Adam saying, use RFID spoofing to unlock motel room doors and let homeless people in for free. Mitchell's answer, spread union talking points on Grinder. Uh, different Scott saying, uh, seize the memes of production. But Jesus, can we really give it to somebody who left a pun as an answer? No. Walter writing, interfere in the presidential election. And Maya's, hack the credit card companies and delete everyone's debt, which is probably the best thing you could actually do with a smartphone. I mean, that's actually the best thing you could do, right, of all the answers we got, Alex? Uh, My favorite was uh, Paolo S's, eat it. But uh, yes, uh, Maya's probably correct. Yeah, that's not probably the best thing you can do with the smartphone. It's probably going to make you sick. I'm going to go with Maya's, hack the credit card companies, and delete everyone's debt. You have won a book we featured on the show on Tuesday, Nicole Ashoff's The Smartphone Society, and you can hear that interview right now at thisishell.com. Maya, just send us a message via Facebook with your mailing address, and we will send it out to you as soon as possible. Alex, who's on the show next week, starting with Monday's live streaming show at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time and podcast shortly after at the exact same place. Uh, we're starting and ending with Monday because I'm in a state of flux for the rest of the week. I am working on it, but uh, the, right now the one thing we do have booked, and I'm really excited about this, is Marielle Fannebecker and J.A. Smith's book, Work, Want, Work, Labor and Desire at the End of Capitalism. But we do know that, the end. <laughs> but we do know that next Thursday we'll have another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Uh, thanks to this week's guest, sociologist Abby Kinchy, co-author of Science by the People, Participation, Power, and the Politics of Environmental Knowledge, which he co-wrote with fellow sociologist Aya H. Kimura. You can find out more about Abby at abbykinchy.weebly.com and follow her on Twitter at Abby Kinchy. Thanks to editor-at-large of Jacobin Magazine, Nicole Ashoff, who appeared on our show for the eighth time. She's the author of the new book, The Smartphone Society, and you can find out more about Nicole at nicoleashoff.com and follow her on Twitter at Nicole Ashoff. We also want to thank uh, Bronco Marchetich. He is author of the new book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Bronco is co-host of the One of 200 podcast, and you can find that on Twitter at One of 200 podcast and follow Bronco on Twitter at bmarchetich. And thanks to today's guests, Dr. Hayden King and Dr. Sheree Pasternak, contributors to the new Yellowhead Institute red paper entitled Land Back. Find out more about the Yellowhead Institute and their paper at yellowheadinstitute.org. You can follow Hayden on Twitter at Hayden underscore King, and you can follow Sheree on Twitter at Sheree Pasternak. This week's Hangover Cure is a Pinnell special. For you to know what that is, you have to go back to Monday's show to hear the entire Hangover Cure. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon. I... I'm feeling really bad about not seeing any of you for office hours tomorrow night. I'm really bummed out about it. I I, I might... I'm really bummed. Anyway, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing Alex Jerry, as always, we could not do the show without Alex and Jeff and Ronaldo and Theron, and we especially could not do the show without your support. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me a profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.